Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today we'll be encoring an interview I did with former South Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice Ernest Finney back in 2006. Justice Finney died in early December 2017. With me in the studio today is the Honorable Ernest Finney, who is the former Chief Justice of the South Carolina Supreme Court. And a little background, when the journal first started off more than five years ago, Judge Finney was one of our first guests, and it was a delightful conversation. But in those days, we didn't tape or record our shows, and so it was lost. So uh, I asked the judge if he would come back on the show, and we're going to cover a wide range of subjects today. And first of all, Your Honor, welcome back to the journal. Thank you, Doctor. I'm delighted to be here for a moment with you. For our, our listeners, let's refresh their memory about who you are, your early life and career, if you'd share that with us, please, sir. Well, basically, I'm a native of Virginia. I migrated to South Carolina about 1946 mm-hmm. as a junior in high school, a graduate of Wilkerson in Orangeburg and uh, Claflin in Orangeburg and South Carolina State's Law School in Orangeburg. Your dad was a faculty member at Claflin. At Claflin. Mm-hmm. And... When you say you were in the law school at South Carolina State, some people forget that for a while in the 40s and 50s, actually into the 60s, we had two law schools in this state. That's correct. And that was because the General Assembly of South Carolina refused to allow African Americans to attend the law school at the university. That's correct. And the courts ruled that they had to either let them in or they had to set up another law school. That's right. And so you were one of the group of men uh, actually turned out very distinguished lawyers and jurists in that law school. Matthew Perry was with you down there? Matthew was a little ahead of me, but uh, we was contemporaries. Mm-hmm. And when did you get your law degree, sir? 1954, an amazing year in the history of uh, the state of South Carolina uh, education because that was... Uh, in June, I graduated from law school, and on May 17th, the United States Supreme Court decided Brown versus the Board of Education. Now, when that case had been perking through the courts as, as uh, Briggs versus Elliott, had you sat in on any—did you go to Charleston to listen to any of the trial? No, I did not. You I did, was you did not. busy trying to get out of law school and getting ready for the bar examination. Okay, which you passed. But then, like a number of young black men in South Carolina in those days setting up in a profession— you had some tough sledding initially. Well, of course, uh, we were a strange breed for the communities of South Carolina. And uh, in order to pay the grocery bill and the rent and provide uh, food for our children and families, uh, we had to do other things. And I chose the idea of uh, being a part-time school teacher. You also did things like you did some part-time catering in the summertime, too, didn't you? Well, it wasn't catering. It was more or less waiting tables. Uh, I was a waiter in Ory County, taught in Ory County, and uh, the rest of it is history. And let's talk about your first, the first bar association meeting you attended. <laughs> now, see, that's when you were on our show the last time, that was a story that I had not heard, and I, I've often thought it's a wonderful bookend because— I was in Charleston on the other end of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, basically, uh, in 1954, I think it was, mm-hmm. don't push me down to the date, uh, I attended my first meeting of the South Carolina Bar Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went as a waiter because 
in those days, uh, African Americans were not uh, admitted to the bar, to the social functions of the bar. Mm -hmm. And uh, incidentally, tomorrow, I'm going back to Charleston to attend a meeting of the South Carolina Bar, mm -hmm. um, at which uh, the, there's going to be some ceremony where they're going to uh, give me an award or plaque or something, I understand. Well, well-deserved. And, and a few years back when you retired as, as Chief Justice, the bar was also meeting in Charleston, and, and I, w I happened to be there, and there was a huge reception that the bar gave in honor of you as Mrs. Finney. It, it, uh, it to me, exemplifies the progress that we have been able to make in the bar, mm -hmm. in the bar and in our state. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, um, as I said when I was sworn in as Chief Justice, it is a time and a day when people of goodwill can celebrate the progress we've made and hopefully be able to continue that and expand the vision of a lot of people in the state. Well, you and I have worked together on, on some projects. We, we were in Somerton a while back on the uh, 50th anniversary of Briggs versus Elliott, and you gave a very impassioned speech to the to the young men and women there because there were school children who were coming to listen to what we had to say. Why don't you expound a little bit on how important you think education is, not just for the children of South Carolina, but also for the state of South Carolina? Well, I think it's absolutely imperative if South Carolina is going to reach its full potential economically and educationally and socially that uh, we provide for the children of our state an education that prepares them to be citizens in the future. You know, as we look at the uh, development of industries and technology, it's going to be absolutely essential that we provide the very best education we can for the school children of this state. And uh, it's important to everybody. Well, you and I both know that, that, you know, we've got some of these poor rural districts, though, where that's not happening. Well, of course, you haven't gotten into it, but uh, one of the cases that I was uh, privileged to write when I was on the Supreme Court of this state was Abbeville versus the state of South Carolina, a case which eight, I believe, districts in our state sought mm -hmm. to get uh, funding that would promote and provide them an opportunity to prepare our students for the future, mm -hmm. uh, which is now the talk of the state, uh, both politically and otherwise, since uh, Judge Cooper uh, has decided that uh, there's going to be the need for improving, particularly in his opinion, as I've read it, mm -hmm. uh, for the early educational opportunities for children. And of course, I hope that the legislature will grab uh, this idea and do what is necessary to mm -hmm. promote uh, quality education for all of our children. Actually, I was a witness in that case down in, down in uh, Clarendon County in Manning. I was the lead witness for the, for the plaintiffs because historically this state has not taken care of the education of rural children. The rural areas have traditionally been, our, at least for the last century, our poorest areas of the state. They have the lowest tax base. Uh, we have school districts in South Carolina which have a tax base per child of about $1,300. Mm. 
and other districts in our state which have a tax base of about $8,500. It is so similar mm-hmm. to some of the issues raised in Brown versus Board of Education where the inadequate uh, educational opportunities are being provided to a segment of our population, mm-hmm. and hopefully we'll find a way to resolve it. Well, the future of the state literally depends upon that. Absolutely. There's no question. If we don't find a way to improve the quality of education, uh, we're going to continue to retrogress, and particularly in view of the uh, expenditures and the advancements being made by our two neighboring states, Georgia and North Carolina. Oh, it's, it's, it's scary. No question about it. We had a lot of catching up to do. You know, particularly North Carolina has traditionally spent a good bit of money on education from first grade through college. No question about it. Our state just has not done that. We have not grabbed the ring. We have made uh, some uh, improvements. Uh, Too often those improvements were too little, too late, Mm -hmm. and uh, we're just going to have to do something about it. Mm -hmm. This is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with former Chief Justice Ernest Finney. Well, when I was, was researching the, the issue, I read every governor's state-of-the-state state address, every inaugural address from 1890 to the present day. I better be careful talking to you. You might be uh, you're too far advanced for me to be... Uh, having an intelligent discussion. No, 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 sir. When I tell people I, I've done that, they say, good grief, sir. How did you possibly manage to stay awake? <laughs> <laughs> Lots of coffee. Yeah. Lots of coffee. Um, but, but you know, it was amazing even to find people like Coley Blees, who've not been remembered very positively in this state for a lot of reasons. He complained about the shabby state of the school system. Now, admittedly, he was only talking about schools for white children. But if, school, if he thought schools for white children were a disgrace, as he said, imagine what they were for African Americans. It's amazing. It is amazing. And uh, I just do not understand why we can't do what we ought to do, which is move public education to the head of the class mm-hmm and do what is necessary Mm -hmm. to improve the quality of um, education. Mm -hmm. I recognize that uh, that's going to be a long and probably a difficult struggle, but uh, it's absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. I uh, have read the press accounts of uh, Judge Cooper's decision, Mm -hmm. which I feel was a step in the right direction, Mm -hmm. but I think it's going to take an conscious effort on the part of our political leaders to recognize what the dilemmas are and to provide uh, solutions for those dilemmas. Well, don't you think we also are going to have to have business and community leaders step forward as well? Oh, absolutely. As a student of our state's history, I know there are times when we've had opportunities or challenges, and sometimes we've met them, but sometimes we've not. This is one of those crucial times in our state's history because, as you say, our two immediate neighbors, and if you include Tennessee, we've got a real yeah, real dilemma. Real dilemma. They're making decisions and are moving ahead in areas that we aren't moving as, as fast. It is because we have not 
moved education to its proper mm -hmm. place in the structure mm -hmm. of our state, the economic uh, outcome. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a family. Whatever you put your emphasis on is where you spend your money. Mm -hmm. And if it's uh, location or automobiles, and our state just hasn't put education where it ought to be. Mm -hmm. You know, back back in the, 19, I think it was 1963, but anyway, the 60s, Charlie Daniel made a famous speech down in Hampton in which he said, basically, a state's only strong as its, as its weakest links. And he, at that time, was telling the, the community is that the days of segregation were needed to be gone, that you had to open educational and uh, occupational opportunities mm -hmm. for all South Carolinians. Otherwise, the state was going to suffer. And he was a relatively conservative businessman saying, this is what we got to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're still only as strong as our weakest links. And our weakest link is our educational system, mm -hmm. in my view. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, I just don't see the momentum to put it in its proper place and put the emphasis and the grease that's necessary mm -hmm. to get the program mm -hmm. through. Okay. I, I, I had hoped that when I wrote uh, Abbeville versus the state of South Carolina that it would be an opportunity for our political leaders particularly to put education first and put greater emphasis on it and provide and promote the kind of educational system we need in our state. Well, Judge Finney, earlier in, in our conversation, you talked about when you were sworn in as Chief Justice, you talked about it was really a new day and a symbol of a change or changing South Carolina. Let's explore that a little bit further. Let's, let's talk about being, your being a young teenager in, in Orangeburg. What was life like? It was difficult, but uh, it was bearable because we had a closely knit community that was supportive. You know, uh, everybody tells a story about when they were young, if they got a beating at uh, school or whipping or whatever you want to call it, yeah. when they got home, they got another one. Right. There was a closely knit community that uh, uh, provided some solace and support for the hopes and ambitions of all of us. Um, today, we have uh, apparently, we've made progress, and I don't deny that or equivocate about that. But somehow or another, in making that progress, we have left so many people behind that uh, we need to look at and see what we can do to improve the opportunities available for everybody. Well, you know, one of the things that has really changed over the last 25 or 30 years, maybe longer, is this whole question of community. You talked about how, in essence, you were partially raised by your community. That's right. And I can talk to white Carolinians who are my age who grew up in small towns, and it was exactly the same thing. And it wasn't just the school. If they misbehaved downtown, there was somebody who was not unabashed about correcting them and then letting mama and daddy know what you did in the theater or you did in the dime store or the grocery store or or what have you. And not abashed about uh, 
using corporal punishment to uh, teach you what you should have done. And when they, when your parents heard about it, they immediately uh, added to your uh, misery. Well, that's right. But let me give you a, a story that something I experienced about five years ago. I, I did a um, workshop for teachers, 25 teachers in the state. And just out of curiosity, I asked them questions. I said, now, how many of you live in the community in which you teach? How many of you shop in the community in which you teach? How many of you worship in the community in which you teach? And the numbers were bad because if they taught in a small rural school, they lived in the nearest big town. Mm -hmm. They probably shopped there. I think out of the 25, there might have been three who did everything. In the, in, they lived, worshipped, and, and shopped in the town in which they taught. And so the school is no longer the center to, of the community as it, as it once was. Well, I think it's, you can an, analogize it by uh, comparing it to the family. Mm-hmm. As the family has been broken up or under pressure, mm-hmm. the communities, particularly the small rural communities, mm-hmm have been subject to the same kinds of pressure. It is difficult to get uh, people to live in a community that does not provide recreational opportunities, sports, movies, theater, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. People want to be where the action is. Well, and the same thing is hitting rural congregations because the smaller rural churches don't have the gyms and the youth programs and the the things that you mentioned. The the family... uh, programs that uh, provide strengthening of the family mm-hmm. because they, they don't have the ability to provide the resources mm-hmm. to carry those mm-hmm. programs on. So it's a, it's a dilemma. Well, it is a dilemma. And when you look at the institutions that made a difference historically in our, our state's communities, you're talking about the churches, you're talking about the schools, uh, and I would say in some communities, people laugh at me. I say the post office is a pretty important institution <laughs> because that's where everybody would meet. That's where point. everybody met. And what has happened? Well, in two generations here, we've been through two wrenching reorganizations of our school system. First with Jimmy Burns, yeah. closing over 1,000 schools in South Carolina. And then when desegregation came in, in the 70s, as you know, high schools became middle schools, schools were consolidated, kids were uprooted and, and, and what have you. The postal services closed post offices all across the state. And rural churches, congregations, some of them have dwindled and, and closed their doors. So I, I don't want to present such a depressing picture, but when I travel the state, I mean, two weeks ago, I, I drove down 321 to, to Allendale County. And, you know, I love this state, but there's, it's, it's, it's a sad drive. It is a sad drive, and uh, we don't see any, oh, I don't see any um, momentum to improve it and to move it to where it ought to be. Um, the economy in most of these areas is just hurting. Well, I mean, you know, whether whether you deal with, with Allendale, which is mm-hmm. one of the hardest-hit counties in the state in terms of unemployment, um, uh, what industry they had, they, I mean, it's primarily agricultural still, which is, as you know, is not a, doesn't provide a lot of jobs anymore. When I-95 opened up, all those little operations along 301 that, and 321 that employed local folks disappeared. Mm-hmm. 
you go over to the PD, over to Mullins, and you know they've they've lost the Russell Stover plant and the glove factory, and I mean you can go or the upstate. You go to the mill towns, and the mills have closed. I mean it's we have just got to find a way, Doctor. Where, and I keep mentioning the political leaders, and you threw in the business leaders, and I understand that. But I think somewhere we've got to find the kinds of it, as you have indicated, historically, we have not been able to put as much emphasis in the area of education as as we should have. That's correct. And, and uh, I think that uh, our ed- business leaders are aware, but I'm not sure that they are as aware of what it's going to take to do what needs to be done in education. Mm-hmm. Let's switch gears completely right now. I think one of the things that my producer used to lure you on the show today because you you sort of demurred, and then she told you I was a new granddaddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, let's talk about future generations. First of all, let's say a few words about your very, very talented daughter. Well, she's... Uh... Very, very talented. The only person who ever made me cry in public was my daughter. This is your daughter, Nikki? Nikki, who is a teacher at the University of Kentucky and who uh, wrote a poem for my retirement at the South Carolina Supreme Court, and she just brought tears to my eyes. You know, we have a bunch of young people who, who really, I think, if given guidance and directions by some of us older people um, can turn the state around. You know, we have uh, a very compact state geographically, mm-hmm. which I think opens up many opportunities that uh, our neighbors don't have. You can go from one end of the state to the other in two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you're correct. It also makes it possible to know folks all across the state. Mm-hmm. And when you know people, then you, you can sometimes get things done. If you know them, then you can uh, then develop a respect for their problems and for their solutions and an appreciation of what they're trying to do. There ought to be more of a community that we have than we do have in many instances. Well, I was on a program down at South Carolina State, and one of the questions that was raised from the audience to the panel was, the price that African-American institutions and businesses had paid for desegregation? There has been a price. Mm-hmm. Now, the question was whether it was worth it is, mm-hmm. a, is a different question. Mm-hmm. But there's been a price. We had, uh, you know, the we talked a moment ago about the uh, community and how it raised children. Mm-hmm. Desegregation has caused some diminishing of that, atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, economically, you know, we could we could go on forever about why, mm-hmm. but basically uh, we need to understand that if we are going to be players in this uh, interracial society, mm-hmm. we have got to find a way to be um, business uh, magnets and mm-hmm. business uh, people mm-hmm. who make contributions look like that. Well, in part of this also is that once desegregation came, that there are African-Americans who chose to go to Myrtle Beach instead of go to Atlantic Beach. 
Oh, yeah, you know, because uh, Myrtle Beach was uh, the more beautiful site and uh, was uh, available. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, too many instances, we went there, and but we not only did we go, we forgot about Atlantic Beach mm -hmm. and what could be done there. We need to make sure that opportunities are kept open for our children and to appreciate uh, what we're leaving them. Now, you've got five grandchildren. Oh, man. Are, they all, are they all here? In they're Columbia? all here in, in Columbia. You've got this big grin on your face right now when you talk about those grandkids. Oh, they're wonderful. You know, <laughs> it's nothing like uh, hitting the house, and uh, the first thing they tell you is, uh, Papa, come on, get on the floor. You know, the two, three-year-olds, uh, and they want mm. to just ride your back, and they think you can do things that you can't do anymore. Of course, you know, there's an opportunity that you, uh, you're you glad to see them coming, mm -hmm. but occasionally after you've been down on the floor for an hour and they've been jumping on your back, it uh, you're glad to see, well, they're going back home. And <laughs> <laughs> but there's some, the other advantage of grandchildren is the fact that it makes you happy. You can see how their parents catch uh, flack raising them mm. and uh, how they make it tough on them. And you remember how their parents made it tough on you. So, mm. so it's, the cycle goes around. When my children were born, my dad told me, said, son, I raised you. I'm going to spoil yours. <laughs> and so I just decided, as you saw from that photograph at Christmas that I showed you of my, my little, at that point, uh, nine-week-old grandson, I was already buying him things he couldn't possibly use. Possibly but, use. That's right. <laughs> but that's okay. That's all right. Uh, that's what grandparents are for. That's right. But I, I think also that's <clears throat> one reason why you are so concerned about the future of South Carolina, as I am. What, what kind of place will this be for my children and my grandchildren? Absolutely. It's, uh, I wish there were something that we could do that everybody understood that what we do today is going to impact later generations. Mm -hmm. That You were talking about that a minute ago and how uh, the leadership needs to understand the necessity for us to make progress. And one thing, this is not peculiar to South Carolina. I think in America in general, people have want the quick fix, something that will just you know, instant gratification, whatever you want to call it. And that's not, I mean, you, you look at the civilizations that have survived over the millennia, you have to think about the long term. You have to make the investment for the long term, whether it's infrastructure. I mean, how many bridges do we have in this state now that you hold your breath when you drive across them, you know? That's right. Education. We have to think about the future, not just thinking about today. How do we... Looks like within the last week, uh, some company down in Florence has transferred a uh, technological segment from Florence to India or from somewhere in mm -hmm. that area to India. And uh, we're losing those jobs. Mm -hmm. Why? I don't know. But I do know that we must find a solution to retain and employ our workforce get it prepared, and keep it uh, available. Well, I've got young men and women who still don't know how to use a computer in college classes. 
Well, that shouldn't. This you got time. granddaddies uh, who don't know how to use a computer, you know. Well, but, yeah, but, but 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 granddaddy, one 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 advantage you had is you always had smart clerks who could do that for you. <laughs> but you know, it's it's. I think about when we talked about the uh, communities. It's not just the young people, which are really important, but. As these businesses close, we've got to retrain adults. Oh, yes. There's a lot on South Carolina's plate right now. We have to avoid and attempt to avoid uh, becoming too obsessed with the idea of the negative parts. There are positive things. You need to accentuate the positive parts. Okay, and let's talk about some of those. Well, I think, number one, South Carolina has the world's best climate. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, even in August? Even in August. <laughs> even in August. Our climate is extraordinarily good. We've mm-hmm. been blessed by our Creator with uh, a little bit of cold, a little bit of hot, and, but not too much of either. I think that we have uh, natural resources that are unmatched. Mm-hmm. We have a workforce that, uh, if trained, and if encouraged and given the idea that they can succeed, mm-hmm. I think we could do it. Judge Finney, let's, and let's emphasize the judge right here. All right. Uh, you talked about the Abbeville case, which is the, the school equity funding case. Right. Um, you were on the Supreme Court for a number of years. Right. Any cases that come to mind that you, you remember with, with pleasure or concern? I can't specifically think of any cases off the top of my head that uh, there were plenty of cases that uh, made us spend long hours and lots of study. Uh, You know, I was on the Supreme Court at the time. The video poker controversy developed. Mm -hmm. There were a number of cases involving individuals who were charged with uh, criminal activities that uh, come to mind. But uh, basically, the biggest problem I had as a judge was the fact that it was just hard work. And had to understand that you were trying to take the Constitution and laws of the state of South Carolina and apply them to human beings. Well, my message was always the same, whether it was to a criminal defendant or the Rotary Club or the NAACP, that's that's where I stand. And that is that we've got the best opportunities and resources in the world, and let's come together and use them. But appreciate the dilemmas with which we are confronted. You know, it was hard as a judge to, and hard particularly as a man who had three children, to sentence young people to the periods of incarceration that when I was on the circuit bench, the law mandated. Mm -hmm. It was difficult to understand that the people of America, as I viewed it at that time, had watched uh, the criminal element of our communities and things get out of hand, and they were no longer, you you don't hear much about, or you didn't hear much about rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. And I tried to, when I was a judge, to be as fair and compassionate as the law would allow. One of the 
things I think that makes us a little different from many of our neighboring states is the fact that South Carolina has a mentality, I think, that uh, wants to be law-abiding. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the reasons we got through the civil rights era mm-hmm. with as few uh, demonstrations of uh, anger and, and violence, violence mm-hmm. than other states did. So I think we need to emphasize and use that. Uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head. And, and it, of course, as you know, that that's a South Carolina story that uh, is not well known outside the state. You know, and it took incredible leaders. It took people like Ida Quincy Newman mm-hmm. and others to— And it took, a, it took a feeling among the populace that mm-hmm. uh, we are going to do things a little mm-hmm. better. Mm-hmm. Well, I can remember, um, and I'm going to have to paraphrase this, but what Marion Gressett said on the eve of Harvey Gantt's admission to Clemson, and that was he had stood for law and order too long to condone any violent actions. Mm-hmm. And he said the courts have ruled and we're going to... We're going to do it. We're going to do it. He didn't like it. And he, and he didn't hide the fact that he didn't like it. No. But at the same time, we did it in an order, a reasonably orderly fashion. Other than the Orangeburg Massacre, that is probably the one blemish that we have where law and order broke down in the state of South Carolina. It was a tragedy and uh, we hopefully learn the lesson from it and yes, will uh, benefit from it uh, to the extent that we allow that not to become a part of our future and put it in its proper perspective mm-hmm. in our past. Mm-hmm. No, there are, there are a lot of wonderful things about South Carolina. Yes. And while there are rural towns that do have problems, again, when I speak around the state in a small town where people say the leadership of that community is trying to like in the, in the tobacco areas of the PD, well, they've lost all the tobacco markets. In places like Mullins and Hartsville, they're trying to try other things. They're, they're not just standing still. Or you look at the real success story of Newberry right up the road here. Oh, yes. My uh, wife's from Newberry, mm-hmm. and uh, she's constantly bragging about the Newberry Opera House and how uh, they're developing downtown Newberry and I think uh, Newberry is a wonderful story. It is a wonderful story, and it it goes against the grain. But then we do have those places that are trying, and they're still trying. But they, you know, they need help. I think the educational s- system is in the upper levels has made progress. Mm-hmm. But uh, as Judge Cooper emphasized in his decision, you know, that decision was uh, as near as I can read, was as close to dividing the baby uh, as as you can find. Well, Solomon was exactly what came to my mind when, I, right. when, I, when I read that decision. You know, when I wrote the opinion in Abbeville versus the state of South Carolina, I wasn't happy with the language which said uh, a minimally adequate education. Mm-hmm. But it kept the issue on the table, mm-hmm. and we had hoped that, uh, or I had hoped that uh, the people of our state would have garnered support and said that we've got to do something. Mm-hmm. Because we do have educational institutions and schools uh, that are doing wonderfully well. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the uh, price of uh, integration. Mm-hmm. 
we have, I believe, five colleges in the state of South Carolina that are surviving, that were historically black. Mm -hmm. They are struggling, for the most part, in attracting and maintaining the students that they would have gotten in former mm -hmm. days. And we've got to understand that those were the bridges that brought us across, Doctor. Mm -hmm. um, up until I was uh, a member of the judiciary of the state of South Carolina, I don't think I ever had a white teacher. And that was out in Reno, Nevada at the uh, one of those law seminars. Mm -hmm. But we have got to find a way to support the institutions, the church, the school, the home, the community that helped us. Now, I fully acknowledge that uh, things are not perfect in South Carolina, but they're not perfect anywhere in the world. And if we had a greater appreciation of what we have and used it to the fullest extent, I think that uh, we'd be a lot better off. Well, you're actually singing off my sheet music here. Oh, my gracious. One, one, one of the things that I... I tell people is in looking at our history is that we don't cover things up, that South Carolina was, was settled and developed by human beings, yes. and human beings make mistakes. We need to understand that. I can't think of many saints in our state's past. I think of a whole lot of sinners. <laughs> um, but, you know, we are who we are because of what has gone before and who has gone before and what they did. don't want to live in the past, but the past did shape us. No question about it. The power structure needs to understand that that past needs to be supported, and the members of the black community need to understand that that past needs to be supported because it's the base of what we are. If if we don't know from whence we've come, um, we don't know where we're going. Well, I agree. We and just, you know what the problem is? Part of the problem is on a one-to-one -one basis, we share that. But the trouble is that we can't get anybody who will come in and articulate it and get a following to do it, or at least we can't agree on it. Well, there are a number of people out in South Carolina today listening to the show, and I know from getting listener reaction is they come from all walks of life. And... I hope that they listen today and um, start asking questions. I hope so. I thank you for the opportunity to share these moments with you and uh, let you know that I'm I'm retired, but uh, I'm not yet uh, gone on to the great beyond. Well, Judge Finney, it has been an honor to have you on the show again, and I appreciate your taking the time. And uh, another year or two, we'll have you back. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.